It's a little extra Lambo. We are here at the podcasting studios at the Palatial Palace here on the South Hill, Spokane, Washington. Yeah! How are you guys doing? Thank you for tuning into the show. Remember to go and hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, download the show before you start listening. That way I can keep track of those good numbers that you guys are giving me every week. I am extremely excited for this show. I was able to record with a friend of mine. Um, We met about seven years ago, and he's been a a confidant, a mentor, a friend, and and a sounding board for you know, anything that ever comes up in your life. And it's always good to have someone like that. And uh, my guest this week is Bob Chrislaw. He is a um, officer of the law, uh, baseball player, which is how we originally met. Um, And he does a lot more than what we actually talked about in the podcast. So I'm going to have to have him back on and talk about those things, the, the, the winery, the snorkeling, the other things that he does. Um, we did talk a lot about baseball, so you might think that this show should be on the Hotcast One podcast, but it is for a little extra Lambo. So hopefully you guys like it. It's going to be a great show. Um, we talk about what we normally talk about in any given conversation. We just happen to be able to record it. So really excited for it, and uh, I hope you guys like it. Um, what do we got to promote here? Um, we're in the last uh, month of the season. So we got a couple games coming up this Saturday. Mount Spokane, if anybody's looking for something to do. Uh, next week we'll be in Post Falls, Idaho at Brett James um, on Saturday again. And then we've got Brantley Gilbert's on Saturday. Colt Ford on Sunday. It's going to be a busy, August is a freaking busy month. And then September, it just rolls in. School starts the 1st of September, Labor Day weekend, and then Jason Aldane. It's so busy. I, I need frequent flyer miles, I think. It's ridiculous. Ah, so without further ado, I'm going to bring to you Bob Chrislaw. For Dave Stewart? Yeah. Yeah. The guy that stared at people and then would throw at them. Mm-hmm. A man. Uh, yeah. A man. Because he's what? Six, seven? Uh, Stu's about six, five. Six, six, five. Okay. And is intimidating. You don't have to wear yeah. those if you don't want to. I'm accustomed to it. Okay. Uh, the thing about Stu, um, on the field, even in the pro camper game, that stare comes out. Off the field, uh, and, and I, when I first met him, I thought, is he going to be just like this guy on the ball field? He's not. He's not even close to that. He is one of the most soft-spoken, eloquent, intelligent men I have ever encountered in my lifetime. We sat and talked labor law for two hours. Come to find out, the major league owners in 94 were using the same 
labor negotiation tactics that the Spokane County commissioners were using against the Deputy Sheriff's Association. Wow. And so we talked labor law over wine and all the other stuff and come to find out he is just this really, really great guy until he crosses the chalk line. (laughs) And those camps, you always play one game against the pros. It's campers versus pros. And Stu was the starting pitcher, and when he crossed the chalk line, he turned back into smoke. And he was nasty. He still can throw aspirins. Hmm. Great guy and a great teacher of the game. I have pictures on my wall at home. Uh, He was giving me private coaching in the bullpen one day. Just him, me, and a guy catching for me. And I asked him how to throw a split-finger fastball. So he shows me how. You do this, this, is this, and, and then you just release it out in front. And this is the best 20 minutes I ever spent. Outstanding. Yeah, he's just a great guy that likes being around people that love the game. That's the thing about these fantasy camps. There's not a lot of talent there, but there's a lot of love for the game. How did you get involved with the fantasy camps? <laughs> and then was this before Mike Murphy, or this is how does I, he lead into it? This is how I met Mike Murphy. <laughs> Mike uh, was partners with Dave Henderson in Dave Henderson Baseball Adventures with another guy. And for years, I took a 25-year hiatus from the game. After high school, I played some modified fast pitch. And uh, once I got into my career, uh, shift work, rotating days off. It just was not conducive to any kind of team sports. And so I didn't play the game for about 25 years. And I'd been talking with this buddy of mine that I'd played modified with about going to a Major League Baseball fantasy camp because we thought it'd be a hoot. And first year we said, yeah, we're going to do it. And then he backed out on me. So the next year we're planning it out, and the last second he backs out on me. Third year... Planned it out. He backs out, and I said, forget it. I'm going anyhow. Make the phone call. Make the payments. Fly to Phoenix. because, And we decided on the Mariners, combined Mariners-Oakland A's, because there's no major time zone change. It's a pretty easy mm-hmm. two-and-a-half-hour flight to yep. Phoenix. And so we've, I'm, okay, I'll go there, and I don't care if I don't know anybody. You know, I've been a street cop for almost 20 years. I'm pretty confident. I can go meet new people. I do it every day. (laughs) Yeah. Show up at the airport. They pick me up. And you remember John Lehman played with the the Tigers? He passed away. Yes. Yeah. Yes. John, great guy. Uh, Talk about a love of the game. He was on staff with DHBA, and his wife is the one that was standing there at the baggage turnstile with a sign (laughs) at Seattle Mariners. And so uh, they pick you up at the airport. Meet uh, the other business partner, a guy named Fielding Snow. They throw us all in a van and take us out to uh, a hotel in Phoenix, not far from the Oakland A's training site where we were uh, having the camp the first time I went. Um, Get to the hotel. Everyone's bags come out. You start dragging them in. Oh, no. You leave your bags right there. So you're treated like a pro athlete from the get-go wow your bags will be in your room oh okay they come back a little bit later and hand me my room key and they said we do need a credit card for the incidentals like at any hotel so okay okay, give my credit card 
and come back. Well, while I've been doing all this stuff, I'm sitting in the bar with, as I like to call it, four other mere mortals. One guy from uh, Australia. His nickname is Dundee. Okay. Great guy. Comes up from Australia every year for the camp. Uh, But the bigger-than-life personality at the table was Dave Anderson. Okay. That big, huge gap-tooth grin on his face all the time. Just what you see is what you get. That man lived and breathed his favorite phrase, which is, always have fun. And Dave never got cheated. But the first thing he does does after he shakes your hand, you realize he's got these massive meat hook hands. I can only imagine. He sits back down and takes off his World Series ring and sets it down in front of you. And you look at it and you realize you can drop a quarter through it without touching the sides. These guys just got massive hands. And he was buying the rounds. (laughs) And Dundee had been sitting there a while. (laughs) He He was not feeling any pain. And I was surprised he was able to play ball. Great guy, though, and that's that's how I met this wonderful human being named Dave Henderson and got to know him well over the next few years. Uh, I would have thought the world of him if he'd never played a day in the show. He was just a quality human being. We lost him, what, three years ago now. Yeah. Um, that was a sad day. I was privileged to be invited to go to his memorial ceremony at then Safeco Field and stand there listening to Stu tell stories and Tony La Russa and Ken Griffey Jr. and Ricky Henderson and listening to Stu talk about his no-hitter in Toronto. The final out of it is a fly ball to left center. And Henderson, Dave Henderson caught it. Stu said, you're crowding, you crowded Ricky on it. <laughs> Stu's response was, do you think I'm going to let Ricky mess up your (laughs) no-hitter? Now, I'm standing 10 feet away from Ricky Henderson when they're telling this story, and he just about falls out of his chair laughing. That's a unique relationship. Mm -hmm. They were all the best of friends. And, yeah, they had to move around because that's the nature of the business side of baseball. But the relationships, ah, no, those guys were tight especially that bunch that played in the World Series together. Mike Moore was on that team, too. Mike uh, is a regular at the Seattle Mariners Fantasy Camp. Yes. <laughs> Bigger than life, and now he's a, a cowboy. Okay. He's a cattle rancher. Okay. And he looks big and mean and tough. Nah. Not so much. He's a sweetheart. Think uh, He's another one of those guys that just likes to sit around and tell jokes. They're... All of those coaches, uh, the regulars, uh, Keith Comstock, Gary Wheelock, who was uh, second pick in the expansion draft in 77 with the Mariners. Um, Comstock, Wheelock, Brian Holman, Mike Moore are the four core coaches that are there pretty much every year. And I've had the opportunity to meet some really, really interesting people that have been brought in. Uh, Norm Charlton, or as he signs his autographs, Norman Wood Charlton III. I, I just watched a video of him in, in the Reds organization today when he ran over a catcher. Yeah. And he tells that story, too. Okay. And he didn't speak very highly of Marge Schott. Who was, who was jacked that he ran over that catcher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Sosha, I believe. I think it was Mike Sosha he ran yes. over. Yes, it was. And Norm paid the price for that one. He was a little banged up after that. But... Uh, Norm is a character. 
but most left-handed pitchers are. Mm-hmm. And one game is one of the early games, and his coaching partner this week at camp is Keith Comstock. So we got two left-handers together. And Norm's coaching third base. I'm playing third for a little while, and uh, sack fly, runner leaves early. Nobody catches it, and I'm thinking, eh, do I really want to appeal this? Norm leans over. Now, this is his team up to bat. And he says, hey, Christy, appeal third. He left early. Okay, why not? We appeal third. They call him out. Comstock goes bug nuts. (laughs) And I didn't say a word. For three years, I didn't say a word. (laughs) And then finally, I pulled Keith off to the sides. And you remember when we... We uh we appealed third on that leaving early. You and Norm were together. Yeah, you know who told me? Norm. Norm. <laughs> I have this really great picture. Uh, between innings, I'm warming up my pitcher, and Norm is standing right behind me, acting like an umpire. Uh, he's just a, a funny, funny guy with a thousand stories, especially about the Nasty Boys. That was an interesting group, and all of them playing for Lou Pinella. Mm-hmm. Those who was stories. fiery himself. We know that as Mariners fans. Oh, yes. And this January, uh, I'm on the staff now with the Seattle Mariner Fantasy Camp. And uh, one of the coaches this year is Tom Lampkin, who was the backup catcher to Dan Wilson while Lou Pinella was there. And from what I understand, does the world's best Lou Pinella impressions. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to meeting this guy. Yeah, yeah. That, That and just being able to talk catching. It's not often you get a former major league catcher there to talk catching with. Mm -hmm. The only one before I got to talk any of that with was Scott Hatterberg. And, you know, he caught in the show for a lot of years, but then he moved over to first base, uh, you know, if you follow Moneyball. And uh, that is another conversation because he'll tell you that Hollywood took an awful lot of liberties in that movie. He was never afraid to play first base. He's a ball player. Yeah. You go play baseball. He was never afraid to play over there. Well, the saying is a, a baseball player or any other athlete will struggle when they come and play baseball. A baseball player will at least compete in any other sport. That's so why I don't I don't doubt that a second that he. Mm. That's why baseball players throw footballs to warm up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Hattie, great guy, uh, warped sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> when I met him. In, let's see, that was a camp in Peoria the first time he was there. And before I went down, I was talking with a local FBI agent about some stuff and mentioned that I was going to be doing this. And I mentioned that Hatterberg was going to be one of the coaches. And he said, Hatterberg? I know that guy. My dad was head coach at West Valley Yakima. He went to Eisenhower. Oh. We played Little League all the way up through, to, all the way through high school. I know the guy. Oh, okay, that's a nice to know. Get down to Peoria and going through all the drills stuff. And they bring me over and say, Hi, this is uh, Scott Hatterberg. And I introduced myself. Yeah, I'm with the Spokane County Sheriff's Office. And oh, by the way, I was talking with the FBI about you this week. <laughs> and I walked away. I left him hanging. Yeah. Which I found out later was the exact right thing to do. A little while later, he comes over and taps me on the shoulder and says, Okay, so. Why were you talking with the FBI about me? I said, well, I was talking with Special Agent Benedetti. Benedetti? I know that guy. I get the whole story again in reverse from Hatterberg's side of it. (laughs) We became more fast friends after that. 
he came back the next year and we were over at Papago. And by now I've gone from being just a, a catcher to playing positions and pitching and had some really good coaching, was getting some pretty good heat on the ball. And I found out early what happens when I throw a curveball to someone like Dave Henderson or any other former pro. My outfielders get tired. Mm -hmm. They run to the fence, and they pick it up, and they throw it back in. Okay, so stop throwing the junk. Just rear back and throw it. They can only score five five runs in an inning. They got a limit on them. Maybe it's three runs. I'm not sure. But they put a limit on them. We weren't going to score on them anyhow, so it really doesn't matter. Hattie's up to bat, and I rear back, and I throw it as hard as I can. And I was getting a, close to 80 at the time. And it was thigh high on the inside corner and looked like a watermelon to him. <laughs> and he tattooed it. And it was still climbing when it went over the lights. I don't think it's come down yet. No. And the funny thing <laughs> is the next day is the last day of camp and everyone's checking out of the hotel and it's raining. He hit a shot that brought rain. I still joke with him about the fact that, that ball's somewhere in orbit. Uh, just a, another quality guy. And I found out later that these guys had to pass the Dave Henderson quality human being test. They all did. Quality human beings around folks that just want to be around baseball players. Ricky Henderson came out and helped. Uh, he was supposed to be there for four hours. He showed up for two days mm. to be around people that loved the game. He'd rather talk fly fishing than anything else. But he sat there and he talked with every one of us, signed anything and everything we wanted autographed, had his picture taken with every single one of us. Okay. Uh, and not once did he refer to himself as Ricky. No, oh, and that's when you talk about Ricky Henderson, well, Ricky likes this. Yeah, not once. Really? Yeah, and he, I would never have guessed him as a fly fisherman. Yeah. Yeah. He'd rather talk fly fishing. But when he gets around all these people that are just mere mortals, and you can tell there's not a lot of baseball talent there, but there's a lot of love for the game. We got little old ladies that come out. One lady, uh, I don't know much about her background, but today's her birthday. She's 66 years old. She owns the Seattle Studs baseball team. It's a semi-pro team over yep. in Puget Sound. Yep. Has season tickets to every team over there in Seattle and hasn't missed a single Mariners fantasy camp. She's been to 20 wow. of them. This girl has a hard time running. She can't swing the bat real well, but she shows up and she plays. Okay. She's just one of the players. And, and she gets treated like one of the players, except that when, you know, when she's hitting, you know, we groove it. I mean, I've had to pitch to her lots of times and nothing but straight change-ups and try to keep it straight, not, mm -hmm. not putting too much snap <laughs> on it. Otherwise, it's going to go in and dive. But I, I try to groove it to her. And, and you learn that after a couple of camps. This isn't about winning and losing. You're not in a tryout. No, this is about an experience. She was on second base one game. And that's a rarity for her to make it out to second. And somebody hit a shot in the gap. And I was catching. And she got waved around third by Mike Cameron. 
who waved everybody around third, and a lot of players got <laughs> thrown out that week. <laughs> but Cammy waved everybody around third. And I knew that we were going to have her dead to rights. And so I took about three steps out in front of the plate, and I got the ball, and I intentionally missed that tag because I knew what the Facebook posts were going to be. I scored the winning run from second base. Just it's lighted her world. It was the beautiful thing. She just was so proud of the fact she scored from second base. That's the farthest she'd run in years. But it's not about winning and losing. It's about experience. I watched another guy. Uh, he just recently uh, retired as a sportscaster down in Salinas, California. Um, did uh, weekend sports. And I watched him do this. Little fly, uh, little pop fly from a little lady that had been an air traffic controller at uh, Boeing Field for years and years, and she's all of you know five foot one and one hundred and ten pounds. Another one of those folks that just loves the game, limited abilities, but just loves it. And she made contact, and it was an easy one. But I watched him go after it, put his hands out, and then pull them back in and let it fall to let her have that actual total base hit. Okay. Her world lit up, yep. and everybody was cheering for her. Of course, they were also cheering for her when, you know, she'd gotten hit by two pitches in a game, and she told Keith Comstock where to go and how quick. <laughs> <laughs> Only she could get away with that one. <laughs> it is just craziness. Uh you spend more time laughing than anything else. And the best time I ever had was on a team that lost all seven games. And I was on that team with Mike Murphy. And one game we hadn't played particularly well, and Keith Comstock says, you want the major league experience? He laid into us like a major league manager. And I'm leaning over, untying my baseball shoes, and taking my dear sweet time, because if I sit up, I'm going to bust a gut laughing. <laughs> I know what he's doing. So I'm just kind of trying not to laugh. That's the kind of thing that happens at these fantasy camps. It's, uh, like I said, it's not real baseball, but it's a lot of fun. And now after, Jesus, this is probably my 10th, 11th one, it's not about the game. It's about the family reunion. Every time I go, it's all my old friends, and then I get to make a handful of new ones. Uh, the last one we had, before COVID hit, uh, we had a young man there with uh, Down syndrome. He's 29 years old. He's pretty much nonverbal, but he loves the Mariners. And his mom wanted him to come and do this, but she was so afraid that he might get hurt or wouldn't be accepted or anything like that. And so she was you know, kind of skeptical about all these crazy ball players. Come to find out, Keith Comstock's sister-in-law is special needs. And they are the best of friends and have been since he and his wife were dating. He has a very special relationship with his sister-in-law. And he's got a soft spot in his heart for people with special needs. And he made sure that, one, he drafted this young man to be on his team and then surrounded this young man with players that get it. And I had the privilege of playing with him. And I learned more about experiencing joy in life than anything about baseball that week. This is a young man that would fist bump the umpire and the catcher after he struck out. Okay. 
he'd make contact and he would try his best and we'd let him go out and play second base but we always had a player around him if it was a little easy roller we'd let him handle it if it was a shot we'd jump in front of him okay um but he was having the time of his life and then comstock started getting on him for fist bumping the umpire and the catcher when he strikes out says you strike out you don't fist bump them you you know give him that <laughs> that slap to the forearm fist in the air kind of thing and the only person that and this guy's mom was afraid he would actually do it the only person he ever did that to was comstock okay <laughs> the kid's got a sense of humor okay oh he's even for being nonverbal yeah he knows how to laugh okay and he knows how to laugh at himself and we learned more about life and experiencing joy in everyday situations just by being around this young man. And he's coming back this coming January. And I'm looking forward to seeing him. Cool. Uh, the, last, the last game we played, and we, <laughs> I got video of this happening. He, we played a road game for the first time the, um, two years ago. We packed up everybody at the Mariners camp and went down the 101 to Glendale, and we played a game against the Dodgers. Okay. Cool. First, first time I ever walked into Camelback Ranch, because I've, I've been to every pre uh, spring training site in Arizona, except that one. First time I ever go there, I go in as a player. I got to catch about six innings worth. Had a blast. And... The pitcher, it was coach pitch. There's one of the, the pitchers for the, uh, coaches for the Dodgers that was throwing this whole thing. He saw who was coming up, and he laid one in there, and Derek got a base hit, and the players knew. They uh, fell all over themselves throwing the ball all over the yard. <laughs> he ended up on second base. Okay. And they gave him the ball, and they cool. made a big deal about cool. it. Uh, everybody seemed to understand what was going on without ever being told. Okay. And that's the kind of people that show up to these fantasy camps. They're just, no one's going to get a contract out of it. Go and enjoy the game and enjoy the camaraderie of those that love the game. Through this fantasy camp, I found out there are people my age that still play this stupid game. you got to admit, baseball is one of the dumbest things known to mankind. No, I think it's dumb after we get done playing and you hurt so badly. <laughs> yes. Yes, and at our age. I mean, I'm 62, and I didn't get back into playing until I was after 50. Mm -hmm. But there are people out there my age that still love to play this game. And I didn't, I thought I was the freak out there that just, you know, no one else wants to do this. No, I found out there's a lot of people that World still. World Series want. down in October when we're down there, they have 72 year olds. Yes, they do the same. Unfortunately, it's about the same time. You're playing in Arizona when I'm playing in Florida. Yep. yep. And. Uh, watching the guys in the over-70 division. They still play the game with the enthusiasm of a bunch of 10-year-olds. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. some of them are still pretty darn intense. I try not to be, but it happens every once in it a does. while. It does. You get caught up in the game. When when you're around the pro guys, like Ricky Henderson, Dave Henderson, mm -hmm. Keith Comstock, are they, when they're telling stories, are they trying to one-up each other? Is there is there gamesmanship between uh, how how because because i'm a clubhouse guy you know this about me i love a clubhouse so how are they with each other when it's just them they're ball players 
And yes, there is that game of one-upsmanship, and they needle each other constantly. My very, very first camp, I had a front row seat to some of the best I'd ever seen because my coaches, Gary Wheelock and Mike Moore, caught the other team, coached by Bert Campanaris and Shooty Babbitt, caught him hitting out of order. You know what happens? It's usually the manager's fault. And Shooty got caught hitting out of order. And Shooty can get a little agitated. And Mike Moore would not let up the <laughs> whole time. And I'm catching this whole inning, and I'm listening to it going back and forth between the two, and it's hard to keep a straight face. But they just would not let up on Shooty Babbitt. And it was fun to watch. And who is, who is Shooty Babbitt? I Shoot, should, should know this, but... Right. Oh, Shooty Babbitt was only with the A's for... Um, a season and, and a little bit. But he wasn't expected to make the roster the first year that Billy Martin was the manager in Oakland. And he just hustled his way onto that team. He just outworked everybody and stayed with the A's organization. Uh, he works on the broadcasts now. Uh, he was an infielder and just an incredibly big personality. Fun to be around. And he's also one of the judges in Kangaroo Court. He and Keith Comstock. Those two guys you just have to watch out for. It's cost me a few bucks over the years. Okay. The good news is the fines in kangaroo court at fantasy camp go to uh, the Angelman Syndrome Foundation. Dave Henderson's, one of Dave's sons, has Angelman Syndrome. And it's one of those situations where they need total care 24 hours a day. And that's where the money went. For the first few years when it was combined A's and Mariners, the money went to the clubhouse manager, because he had um, kids to raise and he just lost his wife. And so we put that money in scholarship funds for his kids. So all the money from fines always go to a very good cause. And if you guys get targeted, you don't pay the full amount if you don't want to. Because one guy got fined 100 bucks for throwing the wrong way in warm-ups before the game. You know how you throw perpendicular to mm-hmm. the foul lines? No, he had to throw the opposite direction, he okay. and his buddy. And <clears throat> the game is to get the number down to as small as possible. And he made the mistake of saying how far apart they were when they were throwing. Well, it was about 100 feet. Fine, 100 bucks. Had he said it was one throw, it would have been $1. Okay. You learn to play the game. Okay. Uh my first camp, it cost me $5 for not getting fined. I made it through the whole week without getting fined, and he had everybody stand up and say, congratulations, you made it through without getting fined. It's going to cost every one of you 5 bucks for not getting fined. <laughs> it's the stuff like that that makes you laugh, or the pranks. One guy was sitting there, and I was carrying on a conversation, and somebody snuck up behind him and put a gob of shaving cream on his hat, and he didn't notice it for 30 minutes. <laughs> It's that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, some of the coaches you don't mess with. You don't mess with their locker because they will get even. Dallas Braden, you know he is. Pitched mm-hmm. a perfect game on Mother's Day. Dallas Braden is one of the best in the business at pulling practical jokes. And someone messed with his locker once. And so after everyone was gone, he arranged for their jerseys to be put in pans of water and left in the freezer overnight. <laughs> And their shoes got tied in a bajillion and ten knots, so they had to you know, replace their shoelaces and a couple other things. I mean, you just don't mess with Dallas Braden. 
he is a wild man on the field. He is that huge personality and fun to watch coach because I've never played on his teams. But after he became a daddy, watching that transition from the wild man on the field to sitting there holding his daughter. That was, I went over and said, I know it's all an act now. And, and Dallas and I got to be pretty good friends over that. Cool. And the day they held Burt Campanash Day in Oakland, um, a bunch of us flew down there because they thought, yeah, we can hold this barbecue like we do for all the reunion games, and Burt will show up for you know, 10, 15 minutes while I get to see him. <laughs> he hung around for an hour and a half. Cool. Well, and the head of the A's fantasy camp got a few of his field passes before the game. So we got to go down on the field. Okay. And we're looking around, and who's sitting in the dugout but Dave Stewart. And he looks up at us and says, what are you three clowns doing here? <laughs> Comes out of the dugout. We're having a lovely chat, and it's getting closer to game time. We know we got to get off the field. But they have that Ricky Henderson field logo painted behind home plate. Okay. And Stu it, says... The new stadium is Ricky is Henderson o- Field, right? Or yeah, something like that? it's still the Oakland Coliseum. And I can see why the pros aren't real keen on it because of the wind currents. But Dave wanted to know if we wanted to have our picture taken out there. So we walk out there behind home plate. And <laughs> everyone's wondering, who are these three guys that their photographer is Dave Stewart? <laughs> that, was, that was memorable. Awesome. Dave is... Just this gracious gentleman. Loves a good laugh. Um, can't speak highly enough about him. Uh, I, I would like to see him be a general manager again somewhere. He's got that kind of baseball mind. He's making great inroads being uh, an agent now. Okay. Represents a lot of players. And in fact, he had to skip out on one camp because he had arbitration hearings. Oh, Lake City Spa, right in the heart of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Call, text, or message Casey Boyle today for your one-on-one spa service. Choose between a membership rate or a daily special, and you'll get the best microderm abrasion, high-frequency, and microcurrent facials in Coeur d'Alene. Just imagine a full hour of relaxing and beneficial facials for just $45. If you have skin issues or care to be pampered by a professional, Contact Casey today, 208-215-6912. You and I are, we're both catchers, so we have had our conversations about catching. And when you were talking to, uh, who was the the pro catcher you were talking to? Scott Hatterberg. Scott Hatterberg. Um, what, What were his conversations like? What, what did you ask him? A lot of it was about uh, pitch sequence and how to get hitters out. And it's what do you look for when hitters are in the box? What kind of weaknesses? What can you use against the hitter? And uh, I hadn't thought about the proper way to set someone up. If you want to get them out with that change up low and away, you set them up with a fastball up in under their hands, especially when they've got two strikes on them and they've fouled three pitches off because now they're in swing mode. Mm-hmm. And once you've got them in swing mode, you've got them. 
All you have to do is get that pitch in the right place. And if they don't bite on the one up high, they will bite on the one down low. Just keep it out of the strike zone, and it'll, it works. That's a problem with my changeup. It doesn't get out of the strike zone too much. <laughs> There's a, that's one I've been working on. And having good coaching, uh, Keith Comstock, Mike Moore, Stu, Brian Holman. I talk to Brian Holman about once a month. And he's, even with photographs and a little video, he's, he's helped me considerably with getting the breaking stuff over. It's At our age, we're not going to blow it by anybody. So you have to hit spots and you have to have movement. So I'm learning how to get movement on all the pitches. And it's really not rocket science. If you think about how the ball is stitched, you can make it do a tap dance. You just have to get the right wrist movement. And it works. I'm, I throw a bullpen every Saturday morning with Mike Murphy. We go out to West Valley High School. Their bullpen is open uh, and we're able to use it. And so each of us throws off the hill for about 15, 20 minutes. And I'm starting to get where that changeup goes in, falls off, and breaks, runs in on right-handed hitters, mm. which is exactly what you needed to do. Um, for my 40th birthday, my friends bought me a curveball. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, and, and, and that in and of itself is a weird story because uh, two of my friends took me to Arizona and we crossed paths with another friend who happened to be the sports director at the NBC affiliate in Tucson. He is now the voice of the Spokane Chiefs and the, C- and the Spokane Indians. His name is Mike Boyle. Mike Boyle. He Mike was Boyle. in my house yesterday. Uh, Mike is a great guy. Yeah. I think the world of him. Anyhow, he made arrangements for me to uh, get a pitching lesson while I was in Tucson. And the whole objective was for me to learn how to throw a curveball. By the time I was done... 35, 40 minutes later, I could throw it right at somebody's shoulder and have it break right down to their knees. So I walked away with a decent curveball. Okay. Remembered how to do that and then didn't play ball again for another 15 years. Okay. Go out and play, and it came back very quickly. And I I threw it one game at one of the fantasy camps right at a guy's shoulder, and it he, you know, his knees buckled. He bends over backwards, getting out of the way just as it drops down through the zone. And now I've got Dave Stewart yelling at me, whoa, that's nasty. Well, <laughs> Stu also figured out how to get in my head while I'm pitching. It's get me to laugh. And he could do it. And the worst thing I could ever do, and I, I would be afraid to do it to this day, is to turn to the other bench and say, Stu, shut up. <laughs> Because I know he'd throw up my head. <laughs> that or it'd come even more intense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's bad enough when Stu's doing it, but three years ago, it was uh, Rich Gossage. He was laying it in on me while I was, well, it was the end of a long day. I caught nine innings the first game, and I caught eight and two-thirds the second game, and... Our pitcher couldn't hold a five-run lead, and we've got second and third and two outs, and we need to get one. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, Gary Wheelock is saying, come here. I don't want to throw a third of an inning. I'm already gassed being back here. Mm-hmm. I got no legs. And, yeah, I had to go out there and get my eight warm-up throws, and the whole time Rich Gossage, who had just shown up, 
is starting to give me a ration. He hasn't even met me, and he's getting <laughs> on me. And I finally struck the guy out after you know, eight pitches. He fouled off a bunch at three and two. Your arm's got to be jello at that point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was gassed. I was ready to go have a nap. Uh, but that happens. You play two games every day, and they're nine-inning games. Okay. Unless you hit time limit, and usually they do. But that also means there's an awful lot of long innings in there. Mm -hmm. You understand that? Oh, yes. When your pitcher has a long inning, <laughs> you have a long inning. Yeah. My, my legs are on fire by the time oh, that's done. God. I've had enough experience with that, certain teams. But it is it is just way, way, way too much fun. I, I can't look beyond playing again. I got to do it. How did you how did you first get involved? I know it was you yeah. had a friend or was it your friend that he was the one telling you about it and Oh, the fantasy camp? Yep. That was my idea. Okay. I had I'd seen it uh during a I think it might have been a major league game of the week, something like that, and it's just the infancy of the internet and went out and found it out there, had some information sent to me, and it, at the time it was just put on by major league baseball. And some of the coaches were, you know, guys like Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson. I, I can't imagine learning pitching from those guys. That would have been a blast. That's what got me interested. Okay. Never happened. Until I pull up the trigger on going down to the Mariners, Mariners A's camp, which was the best thing I'd done in years. It, uh, it forced me to get back into the game. When I went the first time, I couldn't throw to save myself. I could barely get it from behind the plate out to the mound, lobbing it with any accuracy. If I tried to gun it, who knows where it would have gone. I had lost the release point. You know how important that is. Mm -hmm. You have to know exactly where that release point is, or you're moving people all over the yard. But it lit a fire. I liked doing it, so I started throwing on a regular basis. Um, the way our house is, uh, our ceilings in our basement is incredibly high. And I have room for a golf net. I'm mm. talking about a 15-footer okay. that I used to hit golf balls into. Now I just go to the opposite side of my basement and throw baseballs into it. Okay. And I've worn out three hitting tees hitting baseballs into it because that's how you, you keep your edge in the wintertime. Yep. And now playing uh, November in Fort Myers and January in Arizona and back down to Fort Myers in February and it's pretty much playing year round, so I gotta stay on top of this. But it was learning how to throw again. And I did okay in my basement. And then after I retired, I would go to the Spokane Club with my wife, where we're members, and she'd work out in the mornings. Um, that time of day, the gym is empty. So I took a lacrosse ball and a baseball glove. Now, a lacrosse ball is pretty solid. It's slightly smaller than a baseball, and it's a little lighter, but it gets really good rebound. You can throw it from one end of the gym, hit the wall, and it comes back. Okay. And maybe two bounces. I mean, it comes back as hard as you throw it. And I just spent a lot of time throwing, doing long toss, and then I'd throw sideways across the gym and throw at spots. And that's how I got a little better control pitching. Uh, but then I found that every time I'd work on a curveball, my next fastball would go up and in on right-handed hitters. I'd miss high and in. Phone call to Brian Holman. He said, yeah, you're opening your shoulder too fast. Keep your, right, keep your left shoulder closed. You'll solve that problem. 
darn if he wasn't right. <laughs> it helps to know people. Yes, it does. It's a game that once you can get it back. And I've talked with guys I played high school ball with. Come play ball with us. It's a hoot. Oh, no, I can't do that anymore. Bet me. You just have to want to do it. Yeah. It takes a little desire. But once you get back out there and that fire gets lit again, it doesn't go out. Well, you're and you're not going to get it back on day one. You've got to you've got to stick with it for a little bit, and then it'll come back. Well, you know how hard you worked to get to where you got to in college mm-hmm. to even have pro scouts thinking about looking at you. That's huge. That that shows that you worked at it. You showed them something, and the way you still throw. I'm envious most of the time, <laughs> except for this last week. They were right there. Oh man. <laughs> Well, I was proud of that one I threw this last week. Yep. I was proud of that one. Yeah, you got, uh, <laughs> that was uh, not Kelly, that was... Uh, that was Hugh. Hugh, yep. And you look nimble. I have started working with a personal trainer this last November. It's a guy that uh, made it as high as double-A ball in the Oriole organization back in the 80s, a uh, guy named Mark Shockman. Um, I'd gone into his place to do my hitting hit off his machine. He's got an iron mic machine in there. You load it up with about 300 baseballs and it throws one about every six seconds. But while I was hitting, I noticed how he worked with his clients as a personal trainer. And I thought, well, let's have that conversation. And I told him what I wanted to do. I wanted to be stronger in the legs for catching and I wanted to pick up about five miles an hour on my fastball. Can we do this? And he said, yeah, no problem. So in November, I started working with him twice a week. And I've picked up a little on that fastball. But more importantly, part of what we work on is getting out of that crouch and getting the feet moved quickly. It paid off. That one came off exactly the way it was designed to. That's catch How the ball. How are your hips with it, that? Was he, did he work with your hips at all? Getting the hips turned, getting the feet turned, and not standing up. To throw this out of a three-quarter crouch, don't stand all the way up. It's get the drive out of the legs while you're still down there. And now that I think about it, I watch all the other catchers in baseball. That's exactly how they do it. Why wasn't I doing this all along? Well, you used to come through the shoot of, of your tackling frame from football. If you stood up, you're getting a headache. So you had to come out like a plane. Yeah, you just stay down. Don't bother. When you stand up, you're wasting time. The idea is to get the ball out of your hand and get it headed towards second base Mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. And that's what we work on, is just that little instance of getting your feet moved, getting your hips turned, and getting the hand up behind your ear and letting it fly. All the other work is just helping me build velocity. I like it. It doesn't hurt to catch, even though I've got an artificial left knee. I had total knee replacement four or five years ago now. Yeah, I remember that season. Doesn't phase me in the least now. Not as much flexibility as I would like, but it took me 36 years to mess it up. I'm not going to get it all back at one time. Okay. Uh, You got a grease cert on there? You just, before (laughs) games? or? (laughs) Uh, I had to make a deal with my orthopedic surgeon. No long distance running. Okay. And try and limit the amount of running you do. So, okay, fine. 
I'll try and keep my sprints to 90 feet, 180 at the most. Every once in a while, got to go a little farther. (laughs) But it hasn't slowed me down all that much. Uh, There's times when it's achy and I can't run on it real well, but, you know, you do what you can do. I mean, I'm not a kid anymore, but it's still every bit as much fun. It's 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 watching you play. It's watching Mike Murphy play. It's watching some of the other older guys that we have in our league play. That that inspires me to just continue doing what I need to do to continue playing to do what I love because I I can see how you mu- how much you guys love the game. Oh yeah. Well, and that goes all the way back to when we were little kids. Who was the Who was the team that you followed when? When you were a kid growing up, because we've talked to Mike Boyle uh, mm. three times now yeah. here in studio, and his is the Orioles. Oh yeah, he's and, he's an Orioles guy. Yeah, big time. And you ask him any question about the Orioles, and he knows the answer. Uh, my team, the nineteen sixty nine Seattle Pilots. Okay, uh, they existed one year. One year. That's it. But they are my team because at the when the season started, we lived halfway between Chelan and Manson on the shores of Lake Chelan. And by the middle of June, we lived in the Columbia Basin. And Mom and Dad decided that summer, uh, no, we're not going to hook the TV back up. So my companion was the radio, and I listened to well over 100 Seattle Pilots games on the radio. And know the voices of Bill Shonley and Jimmy Dudley very well, um, and the entire pilots roster. Anytime I play Stratomatic, I manage the '69 pilots. Stratomatic. Um, I've read Ball Four no less than fifty times. They are my team. There wasn't a real big star amongst them, but they were my team. And every time we go to uh, Maryvale in Phoenix to a Brewers spring training game, I have a Seattle Pilots jersey I wear. Okay. And a Seattle Pilots hat, and I tell everybody, they were my team before they were your team. Why and, Why were they only around one year? What What created the name change? Uh, they had financial issues in Seattle. They weren't drawing well, and they really didn't have a ballpark. Six Stadium was a AAA ballpark at best, and they were actually still building bleacher seats on opening day. And ticket holders were let in as they finished rows of seats. <laughs> it just, <laughs> six stadium was not meant for the major leagues. And they hadn't approved the kingdom yet. And so they were losing money. And they sold the team to a car salesman from Milwaukee named Alan J. Selig. And the first time I ever saw him in a restaurant in Phoenix during fantasy camp is <laughs> a restaurant called Don and Charlie's in Scottsdale. And it is a base. It was, it doesn't exist anymore. It was a baseball memorabilia extravaganza. When okay. you walk in the lobby to talk wi- to, to the, uh, the hostess, you walk past a case of baseballs hanging on the wall that are all signed by hall of famers. Mm. Everywhere you look, it is baseball memorabilia, and then it, you find it's more sports memorabilia. And this goes from the floor to the ceiling. And in some places in the bar, you got to get on a ladder to go see this stuff. But we looked in the bar as we were making the right turn to go to our table. But who's sitting in there but Joe Torrey and Bud Selig? And I wanted to go in and kick Bud Selig right in the shins. 
for taking my team away from me. I got to see exactly one game in Seattle. I got to see the Pilots play the Cleveland Indians. And the pitcher for Cleveland that day was Sam McDowell. Sudden Sam. That guy could throw aspirins. He was something special. Cleveland didn't have all that great of a team at the time, but Sam McDowell was good. The right fielder that day was Ken Harrelson. And they had a guy uh, in the starting rotation. He wasn't pitching that day, but I saw him out playing long toss. It was Louis Tiant. Mm. So it, it was, you know, when you're 10 years old, you're just fascinated. Uh, I would like to have sat. Larger than life characters. I couldn't figure out the chocolate bubble gum thing, though. What's that? Well, they were blowing bubbles, but it was brown colored. Oh. So I thought, that's got to be chocolate <laughs> bubble gum. No. My dad set me straight on that one. Uh, but the pilots, interesting group of characters. Uh, I still uh, want to go to the fantasy camp. I have a Seattle Pilots. Uh, I have the jersey, the hat, uh, white pants. I had the stirrups to go with it. And now I'm working on making batting helmets with the special scrambled eggs on the bill. And so when I go down there, this time I will actually have a pilot's batting helmet with me. Okay. <laughs> but is, yeah. it, is it white or is it a cream? The pilot's batting helmet is uh, royal blue. The, their, their the uniforms jersey. were white. Okay, okay. The home uniforms were white, but the road uniforms were kind of a powder blue. Okay. And they had uh, uh, bright gold and blue stripes down mm-hmm. the side of the pants. And the players were kind of embarrassed by them. They thought they looked kind of gaudy, especially the, the decorations. They're supposed to look like airline pilots. And they got that decoration on the bill of the cap. Okay. You know? That's the call. That, the, the scrambled, scrambled eggs. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, they weren't real keen on it, but, you know, they were in the show. Yeah. A lot of those guys were cast up. Well, the expansion draft. Um, they didn't have any really big names. Um, first baseman was Don Mincher, and he was an all-star when he was in uh, Minnesota. Played in the 66 series with the Twins against the Dodgers. Um, I can't think of anybody else that went on to to huge careers. But I was 10 years old. I listened to them on the radio. It kept me going. Uh, and they were not a good team. And then after, I'm sure you continued on with the Mariners, listening to the radio as well. Of course. And in between, after the 69 season, uh, and a team that I still like to go back and watch out on YouTube. It was the Oakland A's. Okay. From 70 to 73, 74. They were just fun to watch. They played small ball. They stole bases. They did the hit and run. And in looking at the videos the, they've done since then, talking about what life was like in the clubhouse, you find out that these guys didn't exactly like each other. Mm. But their common enemy was Charles O'Finley. The owner. The owner. And so to watch them is just kind of, wow. Was he wanting to move the team? Is that why why the... No, he was just cheap. Okay. Yeah, he he wasn't willing to spend a whole lot of money on these guys. But he had all this young talent. And he drafted uh, Rick Monday and Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando, that bunch. And uh, Bert Campanaris came over from... 
Kansas City when they moved to Oakland in 68. And this kid named Hunter, um, Jim Hunter, gave him a nickname. Had absolutely nothing to do with him. They call him Catfish. <laughs> that guy. That guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were just entertaining. They were young and talented, and they hated Charlie Finley. But then he offered them something like a $100, $200 bonus, which is you know, a lot of money in the 70s, to grow a mustache. And so that's when Raleigh Fingers grew that handlebar mustache, okay. and he has it to this day. Yep. Yeah, they all have stories about that time, and talking with Campy, uh, Bert Campanaris, uh, they they were just good, talented ball players, and all of them united against Charlie Finley. And that kind of sounds like their A's team of the last mm. 15, 20 years, just good quality ball players that then they move on to their forever home. They are like the farm team for the rest of Major League Baseball, and which is kind of unfortunate, but it is the Major League Baseball business and mm-hmm. I underline business because it's all about making money for the owner. Okay, I get it. You don't have a team if you're not making money. All right, fine. It kind of bursts my bubble. Crave Eats Drinks Nightlife. Downtown Spokane. They are the sponsor of this segment of the show. Go check out Jacob and the staff. Check out the cauliflower bites, the pretzel bites their well drinks, and all of the whiskey and liquor that you would want. Even those little jello shots. Check them out. Downtown Spokane. Craves eat, drink, nightlife. Which goes into, and Albert and I, we've talked several times about the owner just wanting to make money for the Mariners. The only reason he kept Ichiro. Um, Ichiro was a cash cow. Yeah, he brought in fans, and that's a good thing. He filled the stadium, but then again, that was it the 2001 team wins 116 games. Mm-hmm. They were special, and a lot of that was Lou Pinella and having the right players there at the right time, some serious, serious talent. Yeah, but you didn't, yeah, for one year. For or one two, year. Two, yeah, two, because yeah. they had 95 wins the next year, but after that, my my thought on Ichiro is Ichiro had you you spent a lot of money to bring Ichiro in. It was like one hundred and fifty six million dollars to buy out his contract from the I believe it was the Giants um, over in in Japan who he was playing for before. And see them or the Oryx Blue Wave. Uh, I think ooh, it was Oryx. Ooh, it could yeah could have been. So I was wrong there. But you had to buy out his contract. You had to buy him from that team, and then you gave him the contract here. And he played well, you know. He's a he's a, you know, one of the best in the game, Larger which I'll than... never take from him, and yeah. and or say or say anything bad. I just feel that his value when we're getting rid of everybody else, and you've got Felix pitching one nothing ball games, we could have traded him away when you're trading everybody else away to bring in more talent to give more offensive power to Felix to actually win some games. And that has always been my gripe with Ichiro. They kept him around because he put fans in the seats. Yep. And that's unfortunately the business end of it. Um, and then, well, in the strike of 94, when the billionaires and the millionaires couldn't decide how to divide up the millions. That's when I said I'd never go back to a major league stadium again in my lifetime. 
Do you, re- do you remember that year? Oh, the boy. Teams? They took away my all-star game, my playoffs, and my World Series. Because, like I said, the billionaires and the millionaires couldn't decide how to divide up the millions. Me, the fan, I got lost in the middle. And so I swore I would never set foot in a major league stadium again as long as I lived. And I didn't until after I was given permission to do so by Dave Stewart. Mm. Because that's what we were talking about was the labor issues going on in that 94 season. And he gave me permission to come back. He said, it's okay. You can forgive <laughs> baseball now. Said, okay. okay. Okay, Stu. And so I, I think I've paid admission into two stadiums now. But it's more fun to go into them and play. Because I've gotten to play yeah. in the Oakland Coliseum twice now. Okay. And now I understand why the the players aren't real keen on it. The I wind? W- yeah. The wind swirls in there. I was under a pop-up. I was playing first base. And I was 10 feet into fair. And I eventually caught that 12 feet foul. Wow. Yeah, the wind just swirls in there. And I can see why they don't like it. Uh, And there's a lot of foul ball territory. Huge. Absolutely huge. And of all places to have similar foul territory is right out here at Vista Stadium. Hmm. You ever notice how big foul territory is here? I th- I was thinking Oakland was a lot bigger than here. It look at from where you know you're sitting in the stands. It looks normal, but uh huh. Well, I until you get out there and I guess you start running around. But when, I've never played on a Vista, so that's right. You weren't with the Iron Pigs when mm-hmm. we played that one game there. Oh boy, you find out just how far it is from the field to the dugout, especially when you're catching. And how far it is from the plate to the backstop. And by rule, it has to be a minimum of 60 feet, 6 inches. By rule. I didn't realize it. I thought it was just a long way. They do it just to be mean to catchers. <laughs> no, it's by rule. Okay. It's, I don't. Well, I it, played in the Metrodome. You know how big that is then? Yep. Oh, that must have been fun to get under a pop-up. Well, you get, you, the, the first thing I noticed when you get out there was how far second base was away. I'm like, how do I make that throw? You know, it's only 90 feet, but because of the background and the mm-hmm. stands and the baggie and all that stuff, it looks like it's a mile away. <laughs> so, and then you're exactly right. You get a pop-up up. I think I had one. It was towards the first base side, and it went up there, and it just, you kind of lose it for a second, and then you you find it. But there's it, it mm-hmm. was up there. It was a good idea while it lasted, but yeah, Minnesota needed a very, very different home for that. It would probably be okay for football, Mm -hmm. but to play baseball in there, eh, not so much. But of all places to add an open-air stadium for baseball, Minneapolis, Minnesota, really? (laughs) Yeah. Every place in the United States north of, say, the the Northern California border should all have roofed stadiums, whether it's retractable or not, because in the springtime, you're going to fight the elements. Mm -hmm. And naturally, where do they have to start the season every year? Cincinnati, where the weather's crappy. Or they have to start in Boston or New York because that's where they're going to sell the most tickets and get the most viewers on TV. Where's the weather the worst? The north half of the United States of America. Start the season down south. Play in Houston. And I think they try to, <laughs> but it's, I think it takes away from the fans of being there for opening day. You know, they... The, uh, 
yeah, the first day of the season, brand new season, we have to go. Well, it's not nearly as much fun when you have to wear five layers and mucklucks. <laughs> and that's what you have to do in Detroit and Cleveland and New York. But fans still show up. Yep. They, they put their families in the seats and they spend the money. For and, love of the game. Which, again, don't get me started on ticket prices when you have to take out a second mortgage to afford a ticket to a Major League Baseball game. It's a, it's a little overpriced in my humble opinion. My my son and I do a we do a baseball card podcast. That's why here in the studio there are all these baseball cards. So my son and I do it's called one pack two pack it's a baseball card podcast. We open up a pack of older from when I was collecting cards, and then a, car, a pack from today. So we came across a schedule from the ninety one Mariners. And the ticket prices were like seven bucks or eight bucks to to get in. Now you don't even get a hot dog or a beer for seven or eight bucks. Let alone get into the field. Yeah, it just doesn't work that way, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be careful when you go to uh, what's it called now, T-Mobile Stadium. Uh, you got to pick your games. Uh, most of the of the American League and and all the National League pretty easy. You don't go to a game there when Toronto's in town. Once they open the borders up again, because Mm -hmm. it's a home game for the Blue Jays. All of Vancouver, I swear, makes the trip down there. And it just, not as much fun as it could be. He'll be going to his first major league game at the end of August. We're going to go over there when they're playing the uh, Kansas City Royals. So he's excited for just just to be able to go to the game and and see a, a live professional game. The thing I miss about going to major league games now is that they open the gates too late. You don't get to go in for batting practice. And for me, the fun thing to watch was a major league team taking infield because it is very well choreographed. It is constant motion. Everybody knows what they're doing, and it's just fun to watch. Is that because of COVID, or did they start that well before? They started this well before. Okay. The last time I got to watch uh, a Major League Baseball infield practice, I was working for a company in Seattle. And this had to be about 86. But that was when I watched Randy Johnson and Roger Clemens pitch against each other in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like artillery going off when they were both in the bullpens. Oh, I bet. Oh, man. I bet. I sat out in the left field seats and watched Randy Johnson warm up right in front of me and Roger Clemens on the opposite side. And it was just loud, loud, loud pops. How how was he warming up? Was he in, as intense as he was on the mound, or was it him just going through the motions to get loose? He, he was going through the motions to get loose. I mean, these guys are pros. They know what they have to do, and they have a routine set. They do the exact same thing every five days. And he was just going through his routine and slowly going from mediocre speed. To, by the time he was done, he was bringing it. And he was ready to go. And the same thing with Clemens. Uh, and I'm trying to remember who hit the home run off of Randy. It was uh, their big first baseman at the time. He was only there a couple of years. Well, it'll come to me. But uh, I was training at this place in Seattle for six weeks. 
So I also got to see the A's come to town and watched Mark McGuire hit one Mm -hmm. right over my head. And I'm sitting in the left field seats, and it was still climbing. The carom, when it hit the mezzanine, was up. It didn't hit and come down. 525? Easily. He crushed it. Never seen anybody hit a baseball that hard. He was... He's just amazing. Those mm-hmm. guys are in the show for a reason. The rest of us are just mere mortals, and they make it look so easy. Well, like I was, we were talking before we hit the record button here that I was telling a friend of mine, he didn't understand why there was uh, minor leagues. Why, when they're drafted, aren't they just put in the major leagues? Because it's different levels of ball. How, when you go up from low A, rookie ball, to low A, to high A, to double A, triple A, you know, then the pros. Every diff- every level is different. Every level is harder. It's an all-star game every day against guys that are working their way up, and they're every bit as talented, and they are every bit as driven to get to the show. They're out there working every bit as hard. They make it look easy. And what's been fun this year watching the Spokane Indians, because I've been to about a dozen games now. I, I was just going to ask you, how many how many Indians games have you been to? About a dozen. We have two uh, mini-season ticket packages. And uh, seeing the difference between low A and high A ball, oh my. Mm-hmm. These boys hit the ball, they hit it hard. Uh, they play a lot of games, so it's kind of fun to watch how they – they grow over the season. There's some kids there that, uh, well, I'm expecting Michael Tolia to get promoted here any day. He, he got promoted yesterday. I didn't even or, see or that. Two days, two days ago. He's uh, in uh, He's in Hartford. They got they moved him up. Good for him. And uh, uh, McIver, Willie McIver, he was something he, special too. Yep. He was if he was fun to watch. All And these young guys, you look at them, you wonder, they're just kids. 20, 20, 21. <laughs> Just kids, and they are so incredibly talented at this level, and they still got two levels to go. You, yeah. Brendan Doyle is is the guy that I'm waiting for him to go up, and he's at home right now, is, should be having a baby either today or tomorrow. <laughs> so he uh, he has that going on in his life, but when he comes back, he'll I would assume he'll be the next one to go up because he's, he's a hell of a ball player. Reads the ball off the bat, five tool player, and Mike. Mike was here yesterday. He was just bragging all about him. There's some you can see who the stars are, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be around long. And I say good for them. As much as I like watching them here, I want to watch them when they get to Colorado. Yeah, uh, Tolia has already proven that he can hit in Colorado. Did you see that uh, the futures game? The futures game. Yep. Yeah, he crushed that one. Yeah, <laughs> he's just an amazing talent. His his whole build, his stature, his swing, how he plays first base reminds me a lot of my good friend Greg Ross. He's a hockey player from right outside of Edmonton. I can't think of what where he's from, but he's a hockey player or a hockey goalie. So how he moves his glove at first base is a lot like how a goalie sets up. Very much and so. And then with Michael, his footwork is amazing. And in and, and um oh, he was said that the you could tell how much work that he had put in just to work on his footwork and be that smooth and be in the right spot to get whatever throw was was coming to him. He had put some time in. Tolia is just, he works at it. He is a coachable kid, obviously. I mean, you don't play 
at UCLA without being coachable. And he's working at it. It's amazing. And hockey goalies, yeah, they know how to use that glove. I played enough goalie myself. That's the reason I have that artificial knee <laughs> is because I used to be a young and up-and-coming hockey player. But I found out what that knee looks like when it bends the opposite direction. So it, why don't you hit left-handed then? Because mostly, and the only reason I ask that is because every hockey player that I played baseball with, they are left-handed swingers, but right-handed. I don't know the answer to that one because my one of my first toys as a small child was a wiffle bat and a wiffle ball, and I just naturally picked it up and swung it right-handed and have my whole life. I have, I've dabbled with hitting left-handed, but never really got the feel for it and so i'm more comfortable where i'm at and i started swinging that wiffle bat at about three my dad would lob little lob him up to me and at age three i was hitting him over my grandmother's house okay um so i've been a natural hitter my whole life i've never had anybody tinker with my swing and that's from little league all the way through now uh when i go to the the fantasy camps even dave henderson said yeah we're not going to I got nothing for you. Okay. And I came up from uh, middle uh, junior high school baseball in the Efreda baseball system. And that was, uh, you know, they won several state championships down there. They're baseball crazy in Efreda. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, they had a, a fairly new head baseball coach at the high school named Dave Johnson. And he's in the, State Coaches Hall of Fame now. Okay. Uh, was a catcher at Whitworth, and he had this vision of how to build a program, and he did it. And he had his right-hand man, Marty O'Brien, with him um, the whole way. And now the new baseball complex, well, it's not new anymore. Um, but then again, I moved from Ephrata in 72. Uh, it's uh, Johnson O'Brien Stadium, mm. named after Dave Johnson and Marty O'Brien. And they were the coaches at the high school, but they had a, a new young guy that was new to the district coaching the 7th and 8th graders that had played ball at Eastern Oregon. I think it was Eastern Oregon. Anyhow, uh, it was the first year they allowed 7th graders to play on that baseball team, and I was one of those lucky 7th graders. Mm. And I learned <clears throat> from a guy that was fresh out of college with a teaching degree, with an enthusiasm for the game on how to teach it to middle school kids, and I learned more about the game that season, and I still use those same fundamental techniques that he taught me that many years ago. Uh, he taught us how to block baseballs. He taught us how to field from the ground up. Uh, batting practice every day finished up with the line drive drill. You got three extra swings. Every time you hit a line drive, you get another one. The most swings I ever took during that drill was 10. Mm. To this day... If I hit a fly ball, I've made a mistake. This last game, and now that I have a batting average, it was a line drive up the <laughs> middle. Well, I've walked five times this season. Yep. yep. <laughs> but I hit line drives. My my role models for hitters, Wade Boggs. Yeah, he could hit him out, but he hit line drives places. Rod Carew, same thing. Those guys just knew how to drive the ball and use the whole field. If I'm predictable now, it's that I hit it up the middle. Unfortunately, off the handle every once in a while, but when I hit it, generally up the middle. 
the uh, Freitas system. They've won a lot of state titles in this, at least in my lifetime. They're baseball crazy down there. Do you know, being from Euphrates, do you know Dave Haverlow? I know the name. Okay. He's from Moses Lake. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're in Moses Lake now. Yeah. I yeah. thought I thought Dave was from Euphrates, is why I asked that. Yeah, he uh, yeah pitched with the Mariners and the Giants. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very familiar. I scene. played with uh, his son in college, and then Jeff got drafted. Yes, um, yes, did and Dave? Did. Uh, I believe, I, if I remember right, he did help out with our with our college team for a little bit. But many nights would be over at his house having dinner and just talking baseball. The guys that make it to the show, they're a special breed because that's a limited number. Uh, there's a lot of people that have dreams like you and me that never get close. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the folks that make it, I bear them no animosity. They paid the price to get there. I always felt gypped, and I was bitter towards the game when I wasn't drafted because I was that I was that close, mm-hmm. and I just could not understand why my stats were just as good as guys that got drafted. And then you go, you start watching games. You're like, I can make that play. I can do that. I can block that ball. I can throw that guy out. And then you become resentful. And so I, I there was a period I didn't watch. I didn't watch games. I didn't care. And then I started coaching. And then now, you know, kind of doing this, meeting new people, um, just talking with, with people who have been in the minor league system, played major league ball, understand now how hard it is to get from this level to this level to this level and then eventually the pros. And like I was talking with Mike yesterday, I don't – I might have been just as good as those guys that got drafted, but I was – just as good as they were, they they might have had something else. They see something in them, potential, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know because they never saw it in me. Um, and it's also a lifestyle when you get into professional athletics and in talking with the guys that have been in the show, um, what a day in their life is like during the season because – and they work usually six days in a row. They're at the ballpark anywhere from 10 to 12 hours a day doing the same thing over and over. And when you do get a day off, you climb on an airplane and you fly somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure. And I don't like living out of hotels to begin with and to have to do it for three months, sporadically every two weeks. Um, not sure I'd like that lifestyle. I didn't mind because we, uh, we never had... My parents or my family, we always moved. So we were always had from this house to this house to this house. I went from Moses or I went from Clarkston to California, uh, three different spots in California, and then up to Moses Lake. Um, I think I lived in like five or six different houses there in two years (laughs) and then uh, ended up in in the University of Jamestown. I lived in the dorm. I lived in an apartment. I had a house. Uh, I just, it was just always constantly moving and it was never settled anywhere, but I never attached myself to anything. I knew what I wanted to do and that was to get drafted. I took cage swings every day off of a tee working on stuff. Yeah. So I, I had that, you know, I thought I was doing everything right. And, uh, the, the travel was, you know, that was stuff that was brought up. How do you handle, you know, when you get off the plane or you get off the bus, how do you react? You know, and, and for me, I think it was, I needed a little bit of time. I needed that, that time to yeah. get the road off of you. 
it's just a lifestyle that I I probably would not have flourished in. So it's it's good that that dream never came to fruition for me. <laughs> but then again, I was also a working musician from the time I was 15 and played in a lot of bar bands in this town. I thought I had the chops to go and be a rock star playing in a big-name band. And now that I've gotten to know folks that have careers in professional music, I mean, touring bands, I'm glad I didn't make it in that either. They are on the road. Well, the band I, I know best is... Um, a Bay Area funk band called Tower of Power. And they're legends. They've been around since 1968. And people say they never heard of them. You've heard them. And their horn section has played behind Elton John, Little Feet, uh, Bruce Springsteen. They've played behind a lot of folks. And you've heard them on TV. You just don't know it. Anyhow, these guys have been playing since 1968. And they play, even to this day, 180 gigs a year. And most of them are one-nighters. How often do you do you play? How, I, I used to play in bar bands here on a regular basis, uh, usually two or three weekends every month. But uh, since COVID hit and age and a few other things, I, I don't have the the fire to do it any as much as I used to. And in talking with the guys I got to know in Tower, uh, I'm glad I didn't make it big. I don't know how they are able to maintain family life when they are out of town for half the year and moving from, you know, living out of a suitcase and hotel to hotel when they play in Seattle. Uh, it's a great thing for them because they're there for five days. Okay. When they play at uh, one particular casino in Las Vegas, they're there for five days. Most everything else is one night at a time. And they'll go out on the road for six weeks and then come home for two and then back on the road for six weeks and back home for two. I don't know how they do it. It's like ball players. Indie wrestlers. Them too. (laughs) I guess I wasn't supposed to be in that that profession, either one of those professions. And I'm good with that now. I always thought, what if? Uh, You can't play what if. Now we just play baseball. Yep. Yeah, you've got to you've got to come to that realization that that if just wasn't supposed to be there, hmm. and you're doing what you were supposed to do. I had a very good career doing what I was supposed to do, and loved every bit of it, and got out of it with a reasonable amount of sanity. And now I get to take all of that and try and make myself a better ball player. Uh, you can never get too good at the game. At this age, it's just trying to maintain. And so, yeah, you got to do a few extra crunches and you got to make sure you stretch. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the one thing I notice about age. Flexibility is the first thing to go. Yeah. Got to keep. Especially as a catcher. I mean, I feel it when I get down and I start blocking balls. And if a guy's missing my hips, which is why I asked you about your hips, my Mm -hmm. hips are what hurt first. And then it kind of works its way up and then down at the same time and. I, I definitely need to stretch more than I do. Coaching a team, I don't get all that time. That and the sedentary lifestyle. I, your work keeps you out of their sedentary. Mm-hmm. Mine does too. And if you don't take the time to take care of your body, it'll let you know in no uncertain terms when you try to go out and have a little fun. And so that's part of working with trainers and talking with people that know more about it than I do. The more I find out, the more I realize I don't know a whole lot at all. 
when I for I want to go I want to go back to when we first met. How excited were you for me to show up knowing I was a catcher <laughs> to have another catcher on the team? <laughs> I was ecstatic. <laughs> because the year before I had got beaten up so bad and I wasn't getting any younger. And some of these younger guys that throw harder when they get wild it's hard to get in front of that stuff and have the same reaction speed. And more, I spent more time chasing things to the backstop. And I was glad to have somebody there that could spell me off. Uh, and also another catcher to talk to because we see the game differently. Yeah. We're the only ones looking out at the field. Everybody else is looking at home plate. We see the game differently. And unless you've been back there for a thousand games, you don't understand. No. We're, we're trying to understand the guy that's standing behind us as well as the hitter that's right here and the third base coach that's right there, and you're kind of keeping an eye on both of them. I actually, in one of the tournaments I played in, I was playing with a team out of uh, Huntsville, Alabama, and the pitcher was asking me to give my signs faster when the, with the runner on first. Can you just, you know, give me... Call the pitch a little quicker. Well, here's the reason why. <laughs> that guy down on first, I want to see what he wants to do because if I think he's going to run, I'm not calling for that changeup or that breaking ball. I want that fastball on the outside corner. So there's a method to my madness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes pitchers just need to sit and talk with their catchers to understand the game. Yeah, we're We think about a lot of stuff. All they have to do is think about throwing strikes. We got to manage that runner on first or make sure the runner on second isn't stealing our signs, which that was happening this last March down in in Florida. Okay. Oh, that got nasty. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> A little old guy, and, and we knew they were doing it. So, okay, fine. And when our shortstop, you know, yelled at us, said, hey, I think they're stealing your signs. You better come out and change them up. Runner on second just went ballistic. <laughs> I mean, we were questioning his integrity. Well, yeah. It's baseball. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Yep. I've, <laughs> I've had a guy, and I've and I've seen the different hand movements because I'm watching him because I don't like giving – I don't want to confuse the pitcher. I want to stay on the same page. So I'm watching the guy on second to what he's doing if I call a fastball, if I call a curveball, if I call a changeup. What is he doing with his hands or something? And if I don't notice anything and the, you know, the pitcher's like, we need to you know, mix up our signs, I'm like, I don't see anything. Until we can start seeing something, then there's really no reason to do it. But I did have one guy that did it. And when he came up to plate, I put my mask on. I said, look, I said, if I see you moving your hand again, you're not going to need your bat the next time you come up. <laughs> Just walk up to the plate because you're going immediately to the first base. So, and he never moved the rest of the game. He didn't, he didn't pass on any signs. There's a subtle way of communicating. Mm-hmm. And that it kind of happened in my game. Only the hitter decided he needed to try and hit me across the bridge in the nose with the bill of his hat through my catcher's mask. Mm. It didn't work. And it was tempting to, well, in my former profession, you don't ever let anybody get that close to you. And normally they end up face down on the ground after being, you know, spun. With, with your knee in your back. Yeah. And I thought better of that. And so I just kind of put my glove in the middle of his chest and slowly pushed him away. I said, you need to step back. 
I kept myself in the game that way. He was trying to put me in a position to where I'd get ejected. Mm. Uh, no, I'm a little smarter than that. Yeah. But I also know which team he plays for and what number he wears. And I know he and I are going to cross paths again. And he and I, well, no, we're not going to have that conversation. I'm just going to ask for the ball. I want to pitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, we had, uh, one of the first times that I started playing, um, I was nervous because I was, I was like, man, I'm back playing ball. I want to, I want to prove that I can still do this. (laughs) And I don't remember what conversation I was having in my head. And you're like, step out of the box, meat. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a second, where did that voice come from? So I step out and I start laughing and you're just standing there in the corner of the dugout. And you're just looking at me, and then you start laughing. And I was like, all right, I think I got this. It's Don't overthink anything. Yeah, It's baseball. Baseball is meant to be fun. And if you're not having fun, why are you there? That's the biggest thing for me. And I don't last on teams where there are players who suck the fun out of it. I just don't want to be around them. And we we have gotten rid of those guys on, on my team. And that, yeah. that is exactly why. We don't want those guys on, on our team. That's the best part of baseball now at this age. Have fun with it. And my experience at the Roy Hobbs tournament down in Florida is when we get done, if both teams are filled with players that are good folks, we go and sit and have a cold one afterwards together and talk about the game. I oh, believe yeah. it was that at bat. Oh lordy! That I either that one or the first one. I can't remember exactly which one, but this is the very yeah. first game that I played. Uh, you were overthinking it. Oh yeah. Well, the yeah. first one, and I'm showing him a picture from my phone of me hitting a home run at Brett James there in Post Falls, Idaho, and that was my second at bat. My first one, I think I hit like a I don't know a five hopper to the shortstop or something, and then I was <laughs> thinking about you know what am I doing what am, what am I doing out here. The movie Bull Durham provided us ball players with some of the best lines to use on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't think meat, just pitch. Thinking will only hurt the ball club. <laughs> and that Why line does he right keep there, calling me meat. Yeah, <laughs> thinking will only hurt the ball club is one of the best lines because that's a, it's truth. You overthink something, all you're going to do is put yourself in gridlock, and you're not going to get out of it. That's a yeah. And sometimes you just got to laugh at the absurd and. And keep playing. Uh, I had played in one of the fantasy camps in, in Arizona. A guy, was, he got in two outs, and he was struggling to get the third because he was trying to strike everybody out. And I had to go have the Bull Durham chat with him. Stop trying to strike everybody out. Strikeouts are boring besides that they're fascist. <laughs> Throw more ground balls is more democratic. Yeah. And it accomplished what I wanted it to do. It broke his concentration, got him to laugh for a second, and he struck the next guy out on three pitches. Didn't need any help. He just needed to get out of his head for a second. Yep. Sometimes that's all you got to do. Yep. Uh, and and, and that, that, when you did that to me, that just it broke whatever it was that I was thinking about, overthinking about, you know, to be honest with you. And then, all right, I, all right, I don't know what I was thinking about. I'm just going to get in the box. <laughs> Well, Crash Davis did it. <laughs> Overthinking it about Annie Savoy. Yep. Get on the, and, and we just watched that movie. I'm, I'm seeing a new girl, and she'd never seen Bull Durham. 
So, oh. oh, okay. Well, I know what we're doing tomorrow. So, made dinner, watched Bull Durham, and and there was questions throughout the throughout the movie of well, why are they doing that? But you know, <laughs> that is a very accurate depiction of ball players. Mm-hmm. That's just the way they are. What's your favorite ball movie? Uh, bits and pieces of several of them. Uh, Bull Durham, obviously, for the baseball lines. I fast forward through the rest of the movie just to get to the baseball scenes. Uh, the going to the mound and saying, "Yeah, that ball should have, anything hit that far that fast." Just I'd have, have a stewardess. stewardess. <laughs> yeah, I've used that one lots of times. Uh, I like the line in Major League: um, "Nice catch, Hayes. Don't ever do it again." Yeah, you get someone around like that. Um, there's lines in all of the major league movies that are absolutely applicable. It, you just got to pick and choose when you you get to use them. But those are the funny baseball movies. Um, For Love of the Game was an interesting story, but it was kind of dark. My That's my favorite movie is For Love of the Game. It does give you a clue to what actually goes on in the head of a ball player during mm-hmm. a game and the struggles it takes to get there and perform at that high level. Um, it's not easy. And so and that's anything Kevin Costner's in. Um, he's, he's an incredible athlete. He hits from both sides of the plate. He can actually play that stupid game and then goes out and, and plays golf in tin cup guy's an amazing athlete some yeah. of those then again tom berenger was not a catcher <laughs> <laughs> try not to dig too far into those into the major yeah. league movies because yeah. they were all they were all acting but yeah they were all acting it, well but then again charlie sheen has some skills charlie sheen had, had uh well played, he had played high school baseball yeah. i don't think he played in call i don't I don't think he did, but I know he played baseball Jun- in in uh, in in high school. Yeah, maybe junior college for yeah. one year. Some junior college ball, okay. I think. But you look at his mechanics through that; he had some good coaching. Granted, they inflate the numbers and artificially speed it up, but he had good technique. His mechanics were really solid. Um, who was the uh, Randy Quaid? You can tell he hadn't thrown a ball in uh, what is that rookie of the year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so yeah, something like that. And and uh, he had to get a pitching coach and try to go through his mechanics. And I'm like, man, my arm hurts just watching him him throw. The guy with probably the most ability was Dennis Haysbert. Pedro, Pedro Serrano. Oh, yeah. Because he actually did hit the ball that far. Okay. He did have the skills to hit. And, uh, yeah, there was nothing artificial about his swing. And, no, he couldn't hit a curveball. No, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, maybe he really in real life can't hit a curveball. Yeah, he's he's something else. He's uh, an amazing talent. And the voice. And yeah. He's just one of those great voices. And, I, in fact, now uh, in my collection of memorabilia, I now have a Joe Boo doll. Oh, nice. And it probably is going to go to fantasy camp with me, and it's going to show up in somebody's locker. Whoever makes the bonehead play of the day is going <laughs> to have a visit from Joe Boo. Awesome. Uh, this segment is brought to you by Dry Fly Distilling, handcrafted award-winning spirits. The outdoors are calling. They said, "Bring more Dry Fly." Check out their bottles of whiskey, bourbon, 
vodka and the canned cocktails, the on the fly packable cocktails, as well as their merch. Get on dryflydistilling.com to check out all of their amazing products. It's got movies, the funny ones. Because baseball sometimes gets to be just a little too serious at the professional level. But then again, there's a lot of money involved. And incentives in contracts, they have to be serious about it. They don't look like they're having all that much fun all the time. Especially on a, on a losing team. And I listened to a lot of uh, Brett Boone podcast, And he was talking about, even though you are... You're in a terrible season. You're like the Pirates right now, the Diamondbacks right now. They've got 31 wins. They're not even in playoff contention. They're out of it. But yet you've got to be a professional and go through the rest of the season. You don't you don't mail it in because your contract is still on the line for the next year, and you're still playing for something for next year. And that, that was one of the things he, he talked about is of you're still a professional and it might be the toughest thing you have to do is go out to the field every day, having fans heckle you, but you have to stay within your frame. That's what happens when you sign at the bottom of that contract. You have committed. You're going to do this. And, yeah, there's a few that, that mail it in. Okay, fine. They are getting paid a lot of money, and they got guaranteed contracts. Okay, so be it. I like watching the guy that's a year from free agency, and he's still trying to work on his game. He's trying to avoid getting sent down to AAA. Mm -hmm. Those guys that go out there and bust a gut every single day. I like watching small ball. Indians did that in the first inning a couple weeks back. They got a couple on, bunted a guy over, ran a hit and run, scored three in the first. It was fun to watch. You don't see that very often anymore. Small ball is just entertaining. That, we we do a lot of small ball for our team. It's how you put runs on the board. Mm -hmm. And we have we have players in our league that don't like it. They don't like bunts on the ground. I I, I was talking to him after the game. I said that's a part of the game. Well, our our pitcher, you know, he's an older guy and he's got hurt knees, and I'm like. I, I don't know what to say to that because it's it's a part of the game. Well, that's especially when the situation was first and second, nobody out, and we're we're down two runs. Yeah, we're putting a bunt down to move the runners up. It's the way baseball is supposed to be played. Yeah. Um, you know what do you say to him? You got a first baseman and a third baseman. I mean, the pitcher isn't the only one that covers your bunts, mm -hmm. and if the pitcher is the only one covering. That might be the problem. Uh, there's a reason why the pros send guys from the corners charging to the plate when that bat comes out into bunt position. Uh, not that many pitchers are fielding the bunts. Yeah. So, you know, sorry, take it away from us. I had a, I had an awesome bunt three weeks ago. You? Pushed it between you? pitcher and third. I bunt all the time. Drag bunt down the field. I got Mike Carr against you guys. I got Mike Carr our first year. I laid a drag bunt down and giggled all the way down to first base. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll look. When I, we played in Arizona last year, I hit 800 in Arizona. I was on fire. You had a week. And I would, the, like the first pitch of the at-bat, I'd you know do that little hop jump and then pull it back, of course. 
And then I'd look down at third base, and he wouldn't even move. I said, nothing? You're not even going to giggle or nothing? <laughs> well, those are the people that don't get it. But that's okay. And then, well, even uh, Kyle Seeger dumped one here this week. Mm-hmm. At the right time, against the shift. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the shift? Or what do you th- what do you think of MLB trying to limit the shift? The shift has been around as long as there's been guys that don't know how to hit all over the field. The shift wasn't used against the great hitters. It was not used against Rod Carew, Tony Gwynn, uh, guys that could spray the ball. They didn't need to. And you got to cover a lot of fields. So I say it's up to the hitters. Learn how to hit. Make them change their defense. Wait, uh, uh, Seeger did that. They shifted all the way around, yeah. If he'd gotten a little better bunt down, he'd have got two bases out of it. Well, I've seen Anthony Rizzo. They run a shift on him, and he put that ball right down third base. I believe he got a double out of it. Yeah. Take it away from them. Mm-hmm. Force them. Work at your craft as hard as some of those great hitters did. Albert and I, we've talked about this, and a lot of the time it's, you know, you might have the higher-ups in the organization they don't want to see you bunting a ball down to second base. And and I attribute that to the clubs don't want don't care about winning. They're about putting fans in the seats. Home runs bring fans to the seats. Driving the ball deep puts fans in the seats, not bunting. And that's that's you know, do you want to win the game? Do you want home runs? Do you want numbers or do you want a guy putting a ball on to get on base? And Major League Baseball could do something about that because they glorify the home runs, and who shows up in all their promotional videos? The home run hitters. Used to be it was the stolen base guys. Start showing them. Make the stolen base more attractive because there's guys out there that are running like crazy. Not not anymore. Um, no, they weren't. They're not putting up numbers like Ricky Henderson or no. Kenny Lofton. Or, oh, you those know. days are gone. But, well, even in 69, the uh, – the league leader was Tommy Harper with Seattle with 72. Mm. And that's how he got the nickname Tailwind Tommy. Second place that year in the stolen base category was Burt Campanaris. And he and I have talked at length about that season. Um, stolen bases are still exciting to watch. Not only from a fan standpoint, but it's watching the catcher try and set that runner up and how they're able to handle whatever pitch they just called. And if they are thinking and, and, and timed it right, it's that fastball, or maybe they called that pitch out. Uh, I think if they put more of the advertising dollars, because it is the baseball business, on the guys that are the average hitters, I, the, for higher average, not the home run guys. Now, granted, you got to have some of them in there too, but with the Minnesota, my, my example would be the 69 Minnesota Twins. 69, they had Tony Oliva playing right field. High average hitter, but he had some pop. But they also had Rod Carew playing second base. And the third baseman was this, they called him the fat kid. Harmon Killebrew. Harmon Killebrew, okay. Who had possibly the most perfect swing I have ever seen. Short, sweet, compact, weight shift, everything's there. You look at video of Harmon Killebrew, he's the best. And he's still on advertising pieces for any Minnesota Twins thing. Yes, they had it all. Why can't the rest of Major League Baseball do that exact same thing right now? 
you got a couple of power guys, but you got some speed guys in there too. The Twins had Carew, Cesar Tovar as their speed guys. Those guys stole bases. But then again, that's when the game was different. And I'm not sure I like the direction it's going. Um, it's actually kind of boring to watch. Strikeouts and home runs. Yep. It's dull. Yep. I, I don't agree at all with, with Josh Donaldson. He he promotes launch angle and, and you know, don't you don't have a two-strike approach. You swing for the fence every time. And your 263 average proves that. I would rather see guys get on base, line drive, keep a keep an inning going, you know, four, five, six hits in a row. Used to be a 260 average would sit you on the bench. Mm-hmm. Now you're an all-star. Yeah. I'm not sure I like the direction the game went with that. Um, home runs are nice, but you learn to expect it from three or four guys. And that change needed to uh, – home runs saved baseball, especially after the strike and Mark McGuire and Sosa, Barry Bonds. Home runs saved the game. Yes. Brought, brought everybody back to the TV anyway. But now it's – now the pitchers are starting to get better, and then, oh, well, we're using sticky stuff. We're using pine tar. We're using – now it's spin rate. I don't know. I, I think that that small ball – beats any spin rate i think it's just you wanting to use your launch angles and you're getting out more and you're trying to find a blame somebody for your 263 batting average greg maddox never worried about spin rate greg maddox hit his spots and he changed speeds he never worried about overpowering anybody didn't need to. he didn't need to hitting his spot is what got him out One of my favorite personalities in the show was Jamie Moyer. Stayed in the show till he was 47 years old, and I don't know that he could have cracked an egg with a fastball. (laughs) He, but what he had, he threw in the right spots. He'd sneak a fastball in every once in a while. He didn't have to blow it by people. It was just a game of, here, hit this. People couldn't do it. One of the guys from our league, he moved away now. He knows Jamie Moyer and was trying to get him to come out and pitch for their team. <laughs> I, I don't know if that would have happened, but I would have I would have loved that opportunity just to see that ball and how much it actually moved. Oh, I have had many a conversation with Jamie. Uh, at, he was one of the coaches at one of the fantasy camps, and one night it was a uh, – the barbecue at the ballpark and and we're just sitting there just me and jamie sitting there eating dinner topic of conversation was how to load up the baseball we're talking a guy that was in the show till he's 47 now you're telling me how to cheat (laughs) first of all my ears perked (laughs) yeah first of all you don't ever use vaseline it's oil-based it leaves a mark on the ball use something (laughs) water-based <laughs> Substance of choice, KY. KY, snot. <laughs> yeah, something water based. It doesn't leave a mark on the ball. And then at release, you squeeze it like a watermelon seed. And it, I've tried it. I can't control it. Therefore, I'm not going to go down that road. And besides, the penalties for getting caught are pretty darn severe. Mm-hmm. But to think that you, <laughs> someone like Jamie Moyer would actually do that? Oh, shocking. Harris. We saw him in, uh, I went down to play in an event 
couple of Februarys back before COVID, and Jamie lives down there. And he came out to watch our team play because there's a lot of guys from the Seattle Mariner fantasy camp that were playing. And he sat there, and we're playing at, uh, at a high school. And school is still in session. And we're getting to use it on a Friday. Kids came out at lunch hour, and there's this guy sitting there watching the game, and high school kids came down and sitting there chatting with him, and not a one of them had any idea who he was. I just howled about that one. He's just watching. He's just sitting there, went over and was chatting with him between innings, and and he came and had lunch with us the next day. And the point I took away from that lunch conversation was something he said. He agreed. said, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's how you succeed in baseball. That's how Houston won a World Series. Because if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Well, there's a price to be paid for it when you get caught. Mm-hmm. And they got caught. Yeah. Technology. I don't, I don't believe that they got punished enough for nope. it, knowing guys like Pete Rose and how he is not in the Hall of Fame yet, which he should be. Pete was an immense talent. You cannot deny. He was a personality that. on top of it. Yes. And so the debate will always go on about his off-field activities keeping him out of the hall, but you cannot deny the man was a serious talent. Then if that was true, Mickey Mantle would have never been in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, he, <laughs> he was a serious talent too, but <laughs> uh, there's a lot of them back then that just, they were crazy. They were young and foolish. You look at the average Major League Baseball player. They're between 25 and 35. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was between 25 and 35, yeah, there was still a little wild side there. Okay, they're also young, in good physical shape, and have a pile of money. Yeah. That's a dangerous combination. Yeah. Look what it did for Allen Iverson. When, you know, he went through that whole pile of money and all the hangers-on. Same thing with Mike Tyson. I mean, the guy becomes a world champion at 19. All that money that came his way, uh, yikes. That's a dangerous combination. Yeah, especially with somebody who never had money. You know, now all of a sudden, now you've got a boatload of it. Yeah, and fame, acknowledgement, all Mm -hmm. of those things. And for a lot of young guys, that's more than they can handle. And they get in trouble with it. And some of them don't survive they end up out of the game. Well, some of them put it all together and end up being long-term pros. You look at Tony Gwynn. That man was a serious ball player, and he wasn't the most talented, but he was the one that worked the hardest. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't he was a natural hitter. He got a gold glove by a lot of hard work. And that's another one of those shames that he's gone. Uh, easily preventable. Because that was... Caused by his use of chewing tobacco. Well, yeah, I was going to say it was cancer, wasn't it? Cancer. Yeah. It was all caused by tobacco use, and um, I'd like to see that gone. We don't see as many guys in our league using it. No. and I don't think you see that many guys in, in pro baseball, unless they're hiding it really well. I don't think there's as many. You know, you had guys like Lenny Dykstra, uh. Mitch Williams, that it would just a gob of it in their mouth. And you don't, see, you don't see that anymore. And I'm sure that there's guys that chew, but I, I, I think they're probably really small pinches, just enough to just tickle the whistle. That are the little pouches. Mm-hmm. Um, 
keep it you know reasonably clean. Um, yeah, I only did that once. I learned the hard way. You don't chew and play ball at the same time because I took a dive at a line drive and ended up swallowing it and got violently ill very soon after. I, I chewed twice in high school. God, never again. Both times out. It's called the pack bus, which is an old Greyhound, uh, our Legion baseball bus. Both times, slide the window open and all over the side. Yeah. I don't get it. So, you know, it it just wasn't for me. I'll stick with bubble gum. And I never got into sunflower seeds either. I can't spit seeds. Mm. Never got into those. So that keeps me awake now. <laughs> <laughs> Never learned how to do it, so that baseball tradition is lost on me. And and I tell people, you know, when it comes to traditions, baseball's full of it. It's full of it on a lot of levels. Yeah. But anyhow, it's it's a subject that is debated for generations. It's a fabulous, fabulous pastime. You and I still play it with enthusiasm of a couple of ten year olds. We've learned to play other positions now because after all these years, a couple of thousand games behind the plate for both of us, Mm -hmm. we're a little tired of getting beat up. Okay, one of us has got to do it every (laughs) inning. Yep. The nice thing is we don't have to do it for the whole game. I'm I'm very thankful for Tony Graham. Tony is a very good player. Yeah. I am impressed. This is – I'm finally getting to know the guy. Okay. And he's – Tony's a good player. And to have him able to jump back there, uh, our team now has a minimum of three catchers anytime the three of us are there. Mm-hmm. None of us have to get beat up. That's a good thing. Yeah. It's a very good thing. Yeah. Well, that year that you had your knee replacement, I caught all the double, I caught every game. And by the end of that season, I was done because I was not used to catching doubleheaders. Now, in college, we catch. I think we're still recording. Woo. We're getting full. Uh-oh. So I only have one question left for you. But oh, yeah. but in college we'd catch I'd catch both games on or one game on Tuesday, doubleheader on Tuesday. I think it was one game. Doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday. So I'm catching five times a week. So you're used to it. But then, you know, you get into that season like I had when you were out, by the end of that year, I was toast. I was <laughs> done. I wanted to be done. I want the season done. Back then we were young and stupid. We didn't know any better. We just love the game. We'll go out and play, and we get beat up, no problem. We heal up the next day. Uh, not so much anymore. Mm-mm. I mean, we don't recover from sunburn like we used to. <laughs> hey, I, I'm proof of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My point exactly. And so, yeah, you know, it's still a love of the game. Last, last thing I have for you. Oh, yeah. What do you love about baseball? I can't put it down to just one thing. I could go on for three hours about what I love about baseball, from the activity to the back and forth of competition, uh, risk-reward, the fact that you can make a mistake your first at bat and you still get at least two more shots at it. It's a very forgiving game, but it's a very unforgiving game. And you'd have to have played a couple of thousand games to, to understand that mm-hmm. phrase. It's forgiving, but it's not forgiving. It's just fun. It's a bunch of guys getting together. You hit a ball with a stick and you run in a box. And then 
the other guys get to hit the ball with the stick and run in the box. It's a dumb game, and I can't wait to play it again. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about it. It becomes very, very addictive. And baseball, I can think of worse things to be addicted to. Yeah. A lot of them. Definitely. I I didn't really want to play on Wednesday nights just because it was my, – my weeks are so busy as it was. They, you know, to make our team complete, they need another guy. I'll come play. But I didn't really want to. But I'm I'm glad that I do because it's just it's another time to get out onto the field. It's another time to step and face that pitcher throwing at me. It's just it's once you're out on the field, you kind of forget about everything else and you just play ball. It's baseball, mm-hmm. and sometimes you just got to have a big dose of that to make it through your week. How do we survive the winter here? We don't get that dose of baseball very often unless we travel a long way. Yeah, yeah. And we guess- look forward to Arizona. Oh, yes. We look forward to Vegas. And one of these times we'll be in Florida. I, I know that that'll happen to us at some point. It is what we do to fulfill that addiction. We got hooked on it as a little kid, and it just never went away. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm trying to get mine done, which I'm going to have to take a break, but I'm trying to get mine done before my kids start playing on the weekends. <laughs> and then once they're done, then I'll get back into it. So, um. That's I know that mine's coming, so I'm just trying to get everything in now that I can before I've got to step away. So, yep, have fun while you can. That's what I, life's uh, all about. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's been glad a great conversation. We're almost to two hours here, <laughs> and yeah, I'm like I looked down. I was like, wait a second, it just said 35 minutes, but it's not the first time that we've we've had conversations about baseball and it just yeah. wander on. It happens when you talk that. Thank you, my friend. Thank it you. It was a pleasure being here. Bob, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure having you in the studio. Uh, I can't believe how fast that those two hours went, and more than excited to have you on today. So thank you again for coming on. Um, remember, I need you to like that show, subscribe, hit the follow button, download the show, folks. Hit me up on Facebook as well. Hit that like button. Follow along. Um, also on Instagram, little extra Lambo. So all over the place. Leave your comments. Leave your likes for the show. And uh, you being a part of the show is the best part of this show. 